clerics were the third class created for original D&D, after the Fighting Man and the Magic User. It arose from Dave Arneson's Blackmore campaign, created as a variation on the Vampire Hunter. Good old Gary Gygax decided to give the cleric class some spells based on biblical stories such as Sticks to Snakes, an inability to use edge weapons from apocryphal stories about Odo of Ayu, and a focus on monotheistically following a specific deity rather than pantheons, even in D&D settings with multiple gods. That seems to have drifted a bit from the Van Helsing archetype, but I'm sure Van Helsing wouldn't have minded the ability to call down a Flame Striker 2 on Strahd. I mean, Dracula. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage, where two friends have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is the titan from which the Pantheon descended. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew. I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became head gnome. And I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, We'll be talking about gods and patrons in D&D. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. Since the last time we recorded, I've gotten to play in two of my three ongoing campaigns where I'm a player. In the Night's Dark Terror game, uh, we left the farmstead behind to try and track down the horses that have been stolen during the Goblin Raid. We came across a scene where a bunch of the Viper Goblins had been basically uh, brought down by a bunch of the Wolf Riding Goblins, so there were a bunch of dead goblins and some dead horses, and we did find one living goblin, one living Viper Goblin, to basically question, uh, and we, we got to see a little bit of the rivalry that exists between the Goblin clans, because we had one of the uh, the Red Skull Goblins with us who was basically giving us information. Um, after we asked them a whole bunch of questions, we ended up letting the two of them go because they did willingly help us and we are not murder hobos. <laughs> so we followed the trail and we found the horses, but they were being held by some elf woman and some other quote unquote horse traders. They were obviously actually horse thieves who had paid the goblins to go steal the horses. One of the things I love about Tristan as a GM is he makes a point of making sure we are grounded in the reality of the game we're in. So since my character is a half-elf and had spent time with the elven people, he gave me basically like that this woman, just something about her rang a bell, something about her was familiar. And it ends up being she was basically banished from the elven lands for being a liar and a cheat. And she was trying to get these white horses to sell to the elves at some high cost markup because that would get back at them. And I don't know, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Just go live your life, honey. Anyway, once we figured out what was going on and kind of confronted her, it just turned into a big fight. Uh, we ended up, uh, one of the horse traders did give up and surrender at the end. So we basically gave him a chance to plead his case to the farmstead owner to basically let, look, look, dude. You want to turn your life around? These people lost some folks in the raid. They could use some help with these horses. The horses obviously like you. I mean, we've got a ranger and a druid in the party. We know the horses like him. <laughs> that ended up working out. But when we got back to the farmstead, 
We found out there had been another raid further to the north at a logging camp, and some people had been kidnapped. So we ended up following up on that and having to head upriver to basically track them down. And that's kind of where we left things. We should hopefully get to play this one again soon. <laughs> we also got to play in the Undermountain campaign, uh, which is not in Undermountain currently. We're still <laughs> in Waterdeep. Although we didn't stay in Waterdeep. Uh, we basically picked up some threads from the last adventure, which had us investigating the bugbear dressmaker, who was the last person to see Lady Zorhana before she got trapped in her necklace and replaced by a simulacrum. Uh, and we discovered the bugbear dead under mysterious circumstances and a cult related to mummies and an oracle who supposedly serves an undergod of Mistra and, and our names in some book for mysterious purpose. We ended up heading to the Temple of Wonder and we got more information before being teleported all the way down south to Tashluna. I don't know if I'm saying these names correctly. Yeah, that sounds right. The Temple of the All-Seeing Eye was super welcoming and took us to where the Oracle lives in this little pocket dimension. But once we were in the pocket dimension, all was not as it seemed, and we got attacked by the Oracle's creepy golems. I don't understand what they were actually made of, but they were <laughs> golems. And we basically defeated them by keeping pushing them down into a hundred-foot-deep pit on top of each other. <laughs> We've got a little bit more to investigate there, but it was getting late, so we stopped. Um, I also should be running the kids' D&D game this coming Sunday. This very well may be the last time I run this campaign for the kids. Kids, they've all graduated high school <laughs> and are off to college of various places. I am planning on giving them a dragon fight, <laughs> since that's what Dragon of Ice Spire Peak is supposed to be leading up to. I just need to figure out how to kind of shortcut a lot of the adventure to get them to the monkey. <laughs> get them to the interesting part, because they don't have a whole lot of attention span. Usually we get about two and a half hours of actual play before I'm like losing the threat of it and they're losing the threat of it. And we just switched playing board games. So I still want to get them a dragon fight. <laughs> yes. All campaigns should have both a dungeon and a dragon in it before the end. <laughs> yes. Bring out your good China. <laughs> well, not only did I not get to run the Thursday game, but my monthly Saturday game didn't happen either. Am I going to lose my touch? Will I forget what a D20 looks like? Stay tuned to find out. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. For as long as clerics have been a class option in D&D, gods have been an important part of the game. Sometimes it just means defining details around a cleric's religion, but other times it can inform large-scale aspects of campaigns and the setting of the game. With the addition of the Warlock as a class, the game also brings into play the idea of other powerful entities being patrons that also grant powers. So let's dig into some of the details about gods and patrons and what they've meant for the game historically and what it means for our ongoing games and campaigns. So how were gods handled in the earliest editions of game? Obviously, I'm asking the questions because I don't know the answers to these <laughs> questions. Jared does. So early on, you had um, deities and demigods, which was later republished as legends and lore. That's really one of the first things that dug into gods very on a a deeper level and it did so by basically giving stats to a bunch of gods so that they were <laughs> kind of high level monsters you want to kill a god we've got the stats to tell you how yeah that was kind of the way it, it went but there were some other interesting details that got um caught up in that book when it was talking about you know like the other planes of existence and also how clerics actually get their spells and that was where um they kind of introduced the idea that first and second level spells 
come from the cleric's personal faith. Third and fourth level spells are provided by intermediaries. So there's like angels or fiends or whatever, you know, listening to you when you, you know, you know, when you uh, say your prayers and they're the ones delivering your spells. And then uh, fifth, sixth and seventh level spells are all directly from your God. You're important enough then that your God is granting these things directly. And on top of that, depending on the power level of your God, you are actually limited even further in what you could do as a cleric. So demigods could only grant fifth level spells. Lesser gods could grant fifth and sixth level spells and greater gods could grant fifth, sixth and seventh level spells. And if you haven't played earlier editions of the game, clerics did not get first through ninth level spells. They got first through seventh level spells in the earlier editions of the game. Because they had to make it weird. They did. The other thing that was kind of interesting is that there were a few places where characters were kind of presented as priestly characters, but they had non-deity patrons like demon lords or elemental princes. In most of those cases, though, the characters didn't have stats that granted them spells above fourth level. So technically, you could still see the way they, they did this paradigm. You know, an elemental you know prince could still you know provide you with those uh, fourth level spells. They just weren't going to be able to give you those higher level divine spells because that's, you know, where the gods actually play with their their power. The other thing that I think is fun, just because it broke this rule right off the bat, is if you play Dragonlance, you did not get first and second level spells just because you had faith in a god. You had to have the gods present before you had any divine spells because that was important to the plot of the entire Dragonlance campaign when it first came out in AD&D and first edition. <laughs> So what about second edition? What did that add to the conversation about deities? My remembrance, second edition is pretty similar to first edition. It just, not I, I can't even say streamlined things. It <laughs> changed things, codified different things, but it was still definitely much closer to first edition than some later editions have been to each other. I think the editions were pretty similar, but there were some important things that happened with clerics and druids and priests in general. This was the edition that introduced spheres, which basically grouped all of the cleric spells into different spheres. And your god only granted a certain number of, of these spheres. So you either had minor or major access, so you might only get through third level of some spells or through seventh of other spheres. But these spheres were things like war and you know peace and healing and things like that. Druids and clerics were both organized as subclasses of the priest, and there were also things called specialty priests. So clerics pretty much could do the same thing they did in first edition, but that was just one type of priest. And most of the books that detailed deities in second edition would provide specialty priests for those deities. And part of what that did was, for example, the old cleric class was giving you only blunt instruments because they weren't supposed to draw blood. Which is funny because a mace will definitely draw blood, but <laughs> then there is the, I believe the, the apocryphal story of the Lucerne hammer It is listed in the books as the Lucerne hammer without a picture to accompany it. So people didn't really realize that it was a bladed polearm. Yeah. <laughs> but it said hammer, which meant the cleric could use it. The hammer with a spike that you hit somebody with. <laughs> What was interesting, though, is those specialty priests, you might have something like a cleric of Tempus might get the ability to use a greatsword. So, you know, you no longer had some of the stereotypical things that had developed around the cleric if you were using some of the specialty priests. But on the other hand, you might have a specialty priest that didn't get to heal anybody <laughs> because healing just wasn't <laughs> something that God cared about. 
from my experience as a player in those early days, I don't know that it was that healing wasn't cared about. It's just that it was not quite as bad for clerics as it was for, for wizards, but your spells were limited. Yeah. One of the other things is that when they started, when they put out the legends and lore for second edition, they introduced this idea that the gods didn't have stats, but they had avatars. So when the gods manifested somewhere, like on the prime material plane, they had this physical form that wasn't all of their essence, but it was part of them. So you could still have your murder hobo party decide that they wanted to kill Loki, <laughs> but they weren't going to kill the real Loki. They were just killing an aspect of Loki that showed up in that adventure. <laughs> I mean, that's probably a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I will be completely honest. I can't even say I played a cleric in third edition. <laughs> So I have absolutely no experience with playing clerics in first or second edition or basic or anything. <laughs> I just knew it was it was an important class that needs to go to a trusted player <laughs> to make sure the party doesn't die. So speaking of third edition, how did third edition change the paradigm of how faith and power worked? So your specialty priests went away. You still had things divided up into spheres, but instead of having all of the priestly abilities divided up in amongst all these different spheres, you now had these domains and domains might grant you some spells that clerics usually didn't have on their their spell list, but they also granted you special powers. So it wasn't quite as specialized as second edition, but it was still specializing clerics to where they got something extra for worshiping deities with a specific theme. That's probably the, the start of when domains became a thing. Yeah, and um, the core rules did kind of introduce this idea that maybe your cleric just really believes in a philosophy or something strongly that wasn't specifically a god. We'll talk about this later, but that was interesting in third edition for some people. The Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance still required you to have gods to, get, to grant spells, so that was a setting-specific thing saying... We don't care what the player's handbook is saying. If you don't have, you know, a god in these settings, you aren't a cleric. What edition was it when the, what is it, the Time of Troubles happened in the Forgotten Realms? That was second edition. Okay. That was sort of the story behind where specialty priests came from, because in theory, the gods were paying more attention to their clergy, and therefore they were like specializing their powers to more accurately, you know, carry out their will on the, on the plane, so personal opinion here that is a really cool concept i really like how it affected the world all the love in the world to ed greenwood but those books are awful <laughs> they are not a fun read yeah there was um yeah <laughs> i don't even know what else to say about those but it, it's totally fascinating what they did to the world and mm -hmm. killing gods and creating new gods <laughs> and all that but the books were not a fun slog to read also in third edition this is where we first get warlocks and also another class that didn't quite make the cut, but they were called binders. And the reason I want to bring up binders is because binders kind of got thrown into a blender with uh, the warlock to produce the warlock that we eventually got. Binders basically were people that learned how to make these seals and contact vestiges, which were these immortal things that were like fading away between the planes of existence. And the only way they could remain real is by, you know, granting some power to these binders so that they'd be remembered and warlocks from third edition. It was implied that they had made some kind of fiendish deal, but you didn't really go all in on detailing their patrons in third edition. 
So you can see like that idea of the binders, you know, connecting with a specific creature that is outside of reality. And this idea that you had these warlocks that were making deals to use magic when they didn't have a natural talent for it kind of got mixed together later on. I know in fourth edition, there were additional characters or character classes with faith-based power added to the game, but did it play with any other concepts related to the deities and the gods? So what was really interesting is that you had the primal power source, which doesn't it's sort of like the power source from which, you know, the universe sprang and its elemental powers and everything, but it is sort of a religious force. And under that primal power source, you had druids who had previously been a divine class. And they also put barbarians, seekers, shaman, and wardens under the same designation, which the barbarian is really interesting because it the idea that barbarian rage wasn't just somebody that was actually mad and getting their adrenaline going, but was actually channeling this, you know, like supernatural power of nature is interesting. And it kind of manifests in the fact that there are a lot of barbarian subclasses now that do have magical abilities with them. But this was kind of the first time we saw that. I have grognard friends who struggle with the modern barbarian Mm -hmm. because they remember the barbarian of old who was basically instructed to destroy all magic. (laughs) So the fact that some of the barbarians' powers and abilities have a tinge of magic makes some of them struggle a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, and I I will say as a bit of personal commentary, the Berserker being the one that doesn't have any really magical theme to it isn't the best thing because it's probably one of the least favorite ones for people to take too so there's not a lot that you can take that doesn't have some supernatural tinge to it but under the divine source in fourth edition you had avengers war priests invokers paladins and rune priests i loved my invoker i'm blowing things up for my god boom my god wants me to have fireball yeah the (laughs) the thing that was interesting about this was these all did require a god But they introduced this idea that the gods would invest these divine agents with power. And basically because fourth edition didn't want to get into all of the sticky things that earlier editions did where it's like, well, you broke, you know, the law of this faith or you changed your alignment so you don't get your powers anymore. According to fourth edition, once you got invested with that divine power, you had it. If you turned against your god, you still were invested with divine power. You might find another god to worship, but they invested it in you and It was just a bad investment if you ended up not (laughs) following them anymore. And um, Warlocks also showed up in 4th edition, and you did start getting a little bit more of the flavor that we had in the 2014 rules, where some Warlocks had more Lovecraftian, you know, (laughs) weird eldritch aberration type powers. Some had more fey type powers, and some had more um, infernal powers. The Warlock in 4th edition is a little bit more recognizable as what comes forward into 5th edition. Speaking of 5th edition, what are we working (laughs) with in 5th edition for our gods and other powerful entities? All right. So you still got clerics, druids, and paladins, which were all characters that in earlier editions required gods that had divine abilities. And also you have warlocks that got brought forward into 5e. The cleric entry makes it clear that clerics do get their divine power from gods, but there is a little bit of ambiguity about how, you know, Maybe the god just found somebody that is very devout and philosophical and gives them their power, which 
kind of touches on that investiture ability. Mm-hmm. There's not really a lot of rules that follow, like, you can take the cleric's power back away from them. It doesn't tell you you can't, but there's also really no rules to tell you that, you know, if you turn against your god that they can yank your powers away. We'll get to that when we talk about stuff later. Paladins get their divine powers from their belief in their oath, which means that paladins in this edition technically don't need gods. They just need to really believe in the importance of the oath that they have sworn. Druids can worship nature in a general sense. So while they are still priests, they might just revere nature as a whole or nature spirits or multiple gods, you know, depending on as the mood strikes them. So they're not really bound by a single divinity. They are kind of an amalgam of all of this general nature worship. And warlocks have to pick a patron, which forms their subclass, but does get a lot more specific about who are you getting these powers from? Who'd you make a deal with? Exactly. Um, The other thing that's interesting about gods themselves is that for a couple of editions, we only had avatars for gods. You know, we weren't seeing actual gods. But in Tyranny of Dragons, we are given Tiamat stats and, you know, she shows up and you are actually wailing on Tiamat. Now, granted, she is weakened because she is trying to come through this portal into the prime material plane. But it is a little bit of a shift back to that old school thought of this is her physical form. You probably aren't going to kill her permanently. But it is her that's actually coming through that portal. We were actually just talking about this one recently because my buddy Scott, who is running my Undermountain campaign, is also running an in-person Rise of Tiamat campaign. His players are all at about 12th level, so they're getting closer. Mm -hmm. And so he's been trying to figure out how he wants to handle this because he's he's a little worried that his group of murder hobos is going to be too overpowered by the time they get to Tiamat. <laughs> so she's not actually going to be as much of a challenge as she should be. Now, the the way the campaign is written, the characters are doing all of these things along the way to undermine the power of the cult that's bringing her back, which should be undermining her power. But I don't think that's actually mechanically stated. Actually, I think there's a few things that she loses access to if you do certain things in the story. Okay. But he he said he found a version of her that's statted as a CR-42 or something (laughs) obnoxious like that. Uh, And he's been debating whether or not to use that version. Uh, And actually, the, the kind of the funny thing about this is the whole reason he is running this campaign is last year at Origins 2022, he won a Tiamat mini in a game where they all fought Tiamat. And he was the one that landed the killing blow. So he won the giant mini. Nice. So he's got her all painted up now. <laughs> she looks absolutely gorgeous. But he's like, I, I need to use this mini. But am I only ever going to use this mini once? I don't know what we're going to do. Anyway, let's get back onto talking about gods in 5th edition. <laughs> so there's no official stance on divine characters, you know, losing their powers. But they did include the Oathbreaker uh, subclass for paladins. So there's kind of this idea that paladins don't lose their powers, but they get ickier, creepy powers if uh, <laughs> if they don't fulfill their vows. There's not really something similar for clerics, and we don't really have a ruling on what happens if warlocks break their deals. There are some, I will plug this, in M- MCDM's Arcadia magazine, there are some interesting subclasses that represent clerics that have uh, fallen out with their god, or warlocks that have uh, reneged on a deal with their patron. So that actually is kind of a neat resource to look at, because I do kind of like that idea of you don't lose your powers, but your subclass changes so that things feel a little bit different now that uh, things have changed between you and the person that gave you your power. So how have the different official D&D settings handled deities and their followers? 
So Greyhawk obviously was um, technically not the first setting, but Blackmore really doesn't get super detailed other than the fact that it exists. I think Greyhawk is remembered as the first setting. Yeah. Or the first developed setting. Yeah, it, it really it was the first one to actually get like a dedicated campaign setting other than just being referenced in a module because they wanted to incorporate some of Dave Arneson's uh, home campaign in there. They did introduce this idea that some clerics of certain gods could use something like oh, a spear. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's OK because they had to pay like five percent more experience to get their levels in order to do that. In general, there's also some demigods that got fully statted up because there was kind of this feeling that maybe demigods would show up kind of on the same regularity that you would have like demon princes or archdevils. You know, they're mm -hmm. like high level people may run into demigods. So there were a few of those that were statted up in there. Mistara was interesting because by the time it became Mistara from the known world, which was just sort of the default for basic D&D, they went down this track where they didn't really have gods. They had immortals. And immortals were immortals of certain spheres and like cosmically they had to manage these spheres to keep the universe, you know, moving in the right direction. And technically your clerics were clerics of the spheres, not of these immortals. And I honestly think some of that setup came from the satanic panic feel since this was the one that was marketed more towards entry level players of mm -hmm. D&D. You know, so they're saying no, my cleric doesn't work, worship a pagan deity. They they are members of this sphere, keeping the cosmos in place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get into this a little bit later, but there's a lot of stuff tied up in what our culture actually is mm -hmm. and what these pantheons are supposed to represent. Yeah. Dragonlance gods were a big deal, um, and they were formally like uh grouped into the gods of light the gods of darkness and the gods of balance and the entire story was about the gods coming back so until you started playing through those adventures you didn't even have clerics or paladins or anything like that you had to actually find holy relics that told you about these gods that left 300 years ago um, forgotten realms we touched on this before but like all the divine uh magic was supposed to come from actual gods um avatars and manifestations would happen in the old gray box set it gods were not meant to be common to where they actually showed up but the time of troubles like took that one out and shot it in the head <laughs> because you know if you want to talk about like oh those gods show up rarely and it's mainly through signs and dreams unless they all get thrown down out of the heavens and die in front of people <laughs> yep oh gods are real yeah okay so much for being an atheist <laughs> uh dark sun does not have gods but people worship the elemental forces which is kind of part of that post-apocalyptic feel of that setting. Mm -hmm. Eberron, you can probably speak to this one a little bit more. Yeah, Eberron has, Eberron has quote-unquote gods, but there's no direct evidence of them. They are more conceptual philosophies, mm -hmm. so to speak. I mean, it, it depends on where you look, what you're talking to. Like the, uh, the Church of the Silver Flame claims to have proof of the silver flame and that their leader who's this like child is like speaks directly mm -hmm. for the silver flame and all that but then the actual pantheon that most of the rest of everyone worships are just theoretical concepts yeah um that you know i've i'll be honest part of the reason i haven't done much with gods in my games is i've mostly run forgotten realm i mean i'm sorry i've mostly run eberron mm -hmm. and there's not a whole lot to do with the gods there they're more 
it's more a focus for divine belief. Yeah, they are meant to be mysterious, what what the actual truth behind them is. And to be fair, there's a lot of other stuff going on in Eberron that doesn't need (laughs) gods getting mixed up with it, because, yeah. You got Del Kears down there doing all the messing up, so... (laughs) So the the Nenter Vale, which was the setting that was sort of the default fourth edition setting, they introduced gods that were kind of borrowed from other D&D settings, but repurposed into this one unified pantheon. And to tell you the truth, if I was going to run a game and I didn't have, you know, if I didn't have a setting where people had a set pantheon already, I would use that pantheon because it's a really nice, well fleshed out. Mm -hmm. There are multiple gods, but they're not an infinite number of gods. It's pretty easy to understand and grasp what they are. And also, they do get some of those D&D names out there so that people recognize them later on. You know, if somebody <laughs> plays plays uh, Forgotten Realms later on, they're like, I know who Bane is, even though Bane is in a different pantheon in, you know, that Nentor Vale uh, pantheon. <laughs> the Magic the Gathering settings, which have only come about in 5th edition, are kind of interesting to me because they don't touch on gods at all. Except for Theros. Theros is the one that is meant to be more like Greek mythology, which makes sense that they touch on gods. But most of the magic settings really don't spend a lot of time talking about what the actual religion is. The, you know, they have clerics and they have priests and druids, but they don't really talk about who the gods are in these settings. So a lot of the setting books have just kind of ignored that, too. <laughs> Theros is interesting, though, in that not only does it introduce the gods of Theros, but there's a really neat mechanic for tracking your devotion to gods, even if you aren't a divine caster and what it might get you if you, you know, make your God happy. So that's kind of a neat mechanic to look at if you do want to port that into other games. And I think DM's Guild has actually had a few things that convert that to other settings to use. So what are your thoughts on the idea of godless clerics or, you know, other divine or primal casters that do not worship a specific deity? So first off, I would say... I am less worried about druids not having a specific god because the druid kind of at least implies you revere nature. Mm -hmm. There is something that you care about that you are trying to protect or, you know, promote. That's kind of built into the concept there. But the idea of a cleric that doesn't have a god in theory does not bother me. In practice, it bothers me because if you don't have a set thing that your religion is trying to do and you're supposed to do these things and promote these things and you're supposed to avoid these things and you have a structure around that to build that idea of a faith around then you're just playing a a person in plate armor that can cast spells yeah and there were a lot of third edition forums if you went there there were literally people that were like no i don't need to tell you anything about my god i believe in myself i'm awesome and therefore i am a cleric (laughs) that bothered me so much because it's like look Come up with whatever you want to about your religion, but religions and philosophies have something that they expect out of you and provide to you. Yeah. And without that, it feels really hollow just to have somebody walking around saying, I am a cleric of how awesome I am. (laughs) I think ultimately it really depends on the setting and the game that the GM wants to run. You know, sometimes it can work. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be completely honest, you know, I am a cleric of how awesome I am would not be allowed in any of my games. Yeah, that's great. What character are you going to play in my campaign? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You can't exactly have atheists if there are gods actually doing things that people can witness in your setting. Again, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but there is a little bit of a disconnect between how we think of religion 
and how an actual polytheistic religion would work. Mm -hmm. I do think it is important to determine where the divine power is coming from, uh, because you can totally have um, a, a you know divine power getting pulled down by somebody's the power of somebody's faith mm-hmm. rather than it being granted by a specific god. But I think this is something that the GM needs to work out with the players ahead of time, mm-hmm. or at least figure it out when it's important. Oh yeah, which is probably when you're creating that cleric <laughs> character at the beginning. But there you go. Once again, a, a thing to recommend uh, session zero for. <laughs> so you, so somebody doesn't bring a cleric of their, themselves being awesome to your table. <laughs> Speaking of my philosophical disconnect with the way gods are handled in most D and D games, what are your thoughts on that disconnect between a pantheon of gods, but characters only worshiping one of them? I think one of the things that really got tangled up when D and D was first created is that. It was not just inspired by all of these fantasy works by people like Fritz Lieber and Robert E. Howard and all of these people like that, but it was also inspired by medieval wargaming. So somehow they wanted to have these feudal knights, but also, you know, you know, these gods like Krom and, you know, Set and all of these things like that. What they ended up doing when they layered on the fantasy and folklore was just basically saying, okay, so the the church of Krom is going to be organized like this and it's got its own Pope and people only worship Crom and they're all Cromites. And that doesn't really work as well with how things seem like they should work in a polytheistic setting. Yeah. One of the things that I do like in um, Kobold Press's Midgard setting is they actually have things grouped into regional pantheons. So you can be a cleric of just Thor, but you can also be a cleric of the gods of the North. And, you know, in that case, you're trying to make, you know, to um, understand what they all want, although you might give a little bit more primacy to, say, Odin than you do to the rest of them. You are offering prayers to all of them. Different instances, you know, like if you're on the sea and you want the storm to go away, you would be a cleric of Thor at that moment. Mm. So it it isn't a matter of you're a priest of this one deity and you are, you know, you exclude all other deities. And I wish more D&D settings were designed that that way instead of. You know, the the way you have yeah, an entire it, church it, that relies on one deity. <laughs> you know, our our society is dominated by monotheistic religions. I mean, technically, you know, I believe most of the scholars of Christianity, Judaism, and um, Islam all agree it's the same God, one dude, but they all have their own different ways of doing mm-hmm. it. Whereas if you look at the way polytheistic religions work, Unless you are a priest specifically doing things in honor of one God, everyone worships everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, you pay homage to certain gods when the harvest is coming in. You pay homage to other gods when, you know, you have a child on the way. You know, it's, it's you know, you pay homage to different gods when you're going to war. In D&D, I don't see the society set up that way as much as it should be. But then again, that might be getting too far into the weeds for most people's, you know, Saturday afternoon D&D game. It is interesting that Ed Greenwood, when he talks about the realms, points out that D&D has often been or uh, the Forgotten Realms as presented through D&D has often tried to look like that paradigm where it's like, I am a cleric, a cleric of Lathander and therefore I only revere Lathander. And he's pointed out that his concept of the setting is that, for one thing, clerics don't necessarily 
not appreciate the power of other deities. They're just primarily devoted to that God and other gods aren't necessarily upset if you were to happen to say a prayer to someone else. And the other thing that he pointed out is like, if you're in the middle of a winter storm, you're going to say a prayer to Arl. And that is another weird thing that happens in D&D because Arl is a neutral evil god. And what seemed to happen in a lot of D&D is she is an evil god, so no one would say prayers to her. And that's not how that works, really. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a lot of people try and and shove it into a shoebox of Christianity mm-hmm. and say, this is the god I worship. That's the only god worth worshiping. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's God is the God of justice. Not going to help the farmer with yeah. their fields and the crops that are going to need to feel, <laughs> feed everyone. You know, it's like you, you can't exactly go all in on just Tamora. Yeah. Because, yeah, the goddess of luck will get you far, <laughs> but she's not going to help you through war. Oh, Tyr, please inspire people to write a law that says that farming will be good this year. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like on the surface level, I don't have a problem with clerics you know, or other divine classes paying homage to a particular god for their powers. But I wish the setting understood a little more of, you know, what, how, how these religions actually work. Yeah. But then again, you know, considering the satanic panic of the 80s, <laughs> I totally understand all of the designers in the 80s and 90s running as mm-hmm. far away from that as they could. And, and there were a couple times, like I remember some uh, letters in Dragon Magazine where people are like, why don't you present, you know, Christianity or Islam or Judaism as as a religion in the game? Uh, nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so speaking of pantheons, how detailed do you want or need religion to be for your games? So I don't know that I need everything to be quite this detailed, but I really like, again, how um, Kobold Press has Medgard set up when they present their gods, because there's about six paragraphs for each god. And that contains information about the god. There's information about their followers. Um, It talks about who is likely to worship that god, what their symbols and holy books are, what their known sites of worship are. So like the important temples to the faith. And um, if they may or may not actually be considered to be a, a different aspect of another god in the setting, how they relate to other faiths and what their god actually demands of faithful followers. I don't know that I need all of that, but I do appreciate all of that. But if I got like knowing who worships the God, what their holy days are, what the faithful are expected to do and not to do, I'm good. But I think you need at least those things. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, I have not dug too far into religion in my games um, because I guess you could say I've run three, well, probably four if you count the kids game campaigns. Religion has not come up in the kids game because it doesn't need to. <laughs> Two of the others were Eberron games. The first one, I didn't, you know, we had an oracle uh, and we had a witch. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't really need to <laughs> dig too far into religion for that one. For the Dragon Heist campaign, we had a cleric of Mistra, and <laughs> I love Woody. He is a fantastic player, but Woody will tell you everything you need to know about what his character knows. So I never really had to dig too far into it. He would make his own fun of what was important to that character. With the latest Eberron campaign, I've been playing a little bit with um, the Church of the Silver Flame Mm -hmm. and how that fits into things, because what we essentially have is a drow from Zendrick who ended up having to live on Corvair for a while, who became a cleric of the Church of Silver Flame, and now he's back home in Zendrick, where his people are more 
worshippers of avatars of scorpions or other spider type things. And so it's like, it's going to be an interesting challenge to see how he balances it. So it basically only works as far as what is going to make the game interesting for this character. Mm -hmm. I do want religion to make sense as far as the game world is concerned. The GM needs to make sure we're aware of what we would understand as residents of that culture and world. Right. You know, don't let us stumble into a, you know, as a player, don't let me stumble into some faux pas that's going to offend some religious leader because Mm -hmm. I do something stupid that my character would know would be offensive. You know, make sure we know these things, even if you only let us know when it comes up. Yeah, I've been kind of. It's not that any of you would be like huge scholars of like Nethus in the uh, Midgard setting, but that has, you know, become a little bit more important. So you get to learn a little bit more like that Hecate brought him back from being chained in the depths. So that's why they're allied now and things like that. Yeah. With Kazina, it's been fun because her experience with religion is that it's all charlatans bilking people for money. (laughs) And then she met Mazram. And, oh, actually, this dwarf is kind of a solid dude, and I like him, but he's <laughs> he's a preacher, and he's not trying to steal people's money. I don't understand these things. Grave clerics are very chill. <laughs> <laughs> so, previous editions used to categorize gods as demigod, lesser god, intermediary god, and greater god. They're not really in 5th edition like that, but do you think those ideas are still useful in modern games? I think it really varies. For me, I think the only thing that is super useful is I do t- still tend to think of most of the the full-blown deities as not manifesting themselves, but sending avatars places. Mm-hmm. I, I like that concept, but I also tend to picture demigods as being somebody that's there for real. They are still in that that place between being mortal and being a god, so they do still have stats, and they are still you know kind of the divine thing that you can directly interact with, even if they are starting to have followers and priests and things like that. I think in a lot of settings, it doesn't matter as much now. I'll be honest, like even like in the Forgotten Realms, when they would say this person's a greater God, and this person's an intermediary God, none of it really mattered yeah. because there's not like there's not a hierarchy of gods in the Forgotten Realm. There, it's not like Lathander is the head of the Pantheon, though he's got to be a greater God. They're just all kind of there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know in some of the games I've played, there's been a little bit of hierarchy, like Kord had to answer to Bahamut, at least during the war. Mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's just, you know, you don't need that. Hi- you don't need to go as detailed as that hierarchy unless it's important for your campaign. Well, yeah, and I was going to say even like Dragonlance, which has, you know, their very rigid pantheon that they have, even though, you know, Paladine is the head of the gods of light and the is the god, the head of the gods of darkness. They don't even really mention that they are more powerful. You just kind of assume that because they are the head of that branch of the pantheon. Yeah. I mean, they really don't have stats in that setting, for sure. Although, first edition, they did, and they gave them like 999 hit points, so. (laughs) (laughs) Hadn't learned the lesson of if you don't want your players to kill it, don't give it stats. So what is the dividing line between a god and a patron? So this has been interesting to me because I've seen this get discussed a lot since 2014. And, you know, once the warlock kind of became a core class that everybody was aware of. To me, conceptually, the difference is that a god is providing powers to a cleric because that cleric worships them and wants the same things that the god wants, and they are being provided these powers to do something for their faithful, to do something to further their domain. That's why they get their powers. 
to me, a patron, a warlock patron is more, it's more transactional. It is more like this really powerful being likes to have agents that they can call on to do things and they get something out of that relationship. And that person that works for the patron may not care for that patron at all, may not even really want to do the things the patron wants them to do and might be trying to look for ways to get out of doing the things that the patron wants them to do. So there is more of a tension between a patron and a warlock. I mean, I've always kind of seen warlock as people that either didn't have the ability or didn't have the patience to develop the ability to use magic <laughs> any other way. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of, I mean, I have some biases there, but that's really how I like to distinguish them in my own mind. So how powerful should an entity be to serve as a patron for a warlock? So my preference, just to keep things as, as clear as possible, I know in a few places people have mentioned deities having warlocks, and I would rather not have deities being warlock patrons because I think that muddies things up. I think, you know, anything that is less powerful than a full deity, but is more powerful than just a common creature, you know, is probably the right range there. Um, I don't think there's a set like challenge rating to say, you know, like it's got to be at least challenge rating 10 before it can be a, a patron or it's got to be <laughs> a higher challenge rating than than their warlock. But I do think there needs to be something that feels kind of legendary about the person that is granting the ability. Yeah. Like, for example, if you run into run of the run of the mill vampire, that's probably not going to be a warlock patron. But if you run into a vampire that, you know, was cursed by some legendary figure or during some legendary event, that's the kind of vampire that's probably going to be able to have patrons like your Strahd von Zarovich is going to be able to do it, but not, you know, Lenny, yeah. the vampire on the corner. And it's all about the deal. It's all about the contract. Mm -hmm. So how active are the gods and patrons in your game? What are your thoughts on having them directly interact with the PCs? So all of you right now in the um, Midgard game that we're in have just hit ninth level. And the closest you've you've actually had a few sort of divine. You ran into a a divine manifestation for one adventure back when you were seventh level, I think when you fought the bull of heaven, which was not like the full God. It was just the part of the God that was possessing someone. An avatar, so to speak. Yeah. And then right now you got a messenger from uh, Sagotan that gave you a divine uh, artifact of Sagotan. That's been the most that this campaign has really delved into God's directly influencing things. So there is a lot of like investing their power in a chosen mortal, but not necessarily showing up themselves to tap you on the shoulder. Again, I haven't done too much as a GM, but as a player, I've seen different things happen. So, for example, in the City of Cowles campaign, Alaric is our Tempest Cleric of Cord. And in the setting, Cord is chaotic good. Alaric is chaotic. <laughs> he doesn't always understand the need to be good. And there was one time where he crossed a line. Uh, we had defeated some minions of the Ebon Cowl who'd been sent to assassinate us, and I believe we killed two of them. Two of them had surrendered, so we let them leave. And then two of them, well, before any of us could do anything about it, Alaric chopped their hands off and sent them back to the Ebon Cowl as a message. A little harsh. <laughs> yeah, a little harsh, a little harsh. Uh, and so as we set off on our journey to find the source of the Blight, Cord basically started taking Alaric's powers away from him. So Alaric was struggling to cast spells the way he normally did. 
this really only lasted for a couple of sessions. He was definitely struggling to cast his abilities and commune with his god and like all of this. And then at the, you know, the point where he realized he had definitely messed up something, he had a conversation with Cord. And Cord <laughs> basically told him, This is his one chance. Don't fuck it up again, asshole. I love Cord. He's like, <laughs> you'll find out why I love Cord for my next point. But Cord basically said, Look, you may not be good, but I am, and you can't serve me if you are doing these things. Be better, do better. And basically gave Alaric his powers back. So Alaric is trying <laughs> to be better, but he still doesn't get why he has to do this all the time. He had a come to Stormlord uh, meeting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in the uh, Rain Shadow Tales campaign, which was the campaign where I played through the Rise of Tiamat stuff, uh, run by my friend mm. Jen, my character was also a worshiper of Kord. <laughs> uh, and we had set this up where Zalus is a blue dragonborn. And I just chose Kord because I wanted to be a Tempest cleric and didn't really <laughs> read about him. And then after we had started playing the campaign, we both realized that Kord doesn't like chromatic dragons. <laughs> so we had to come up with a reason why this blue dragonborn would be invested with his power. And we decided that, like, Cord basically punked her and threw a, you know, thunderstorm at her as she was smuggling stuff across the border. And she got mad at the storm and yelled at it. And he <laughs> liked her spirit. So he gave her powers. And basically throughout the campaign, Zalus and Cord would occasionally have these conversations where she would go to sleep at night and in her dreams she would wake up in Cord's Lodge, sit down, have an ale with him, talk about what was going on, get a few pointers here and there, be sent back off to the fight. One of her magic items, which Jen didn't even require me to use an attunement slot for because it was just flavor, was a mug of ale that all she had to do was turn it upside down and empty it and then turn it back up and it would have fresh ale in it. It was fantastic. But she had a friendship with her god, you know, and that was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed doing that. And I had never I had never really seen that done before in a game. <laughs> so have you ever had a patron try and collect on what a PC owes them? See, I love the role playing space that these give you. Because at the very least, I think it, when somebody starts playing a warlock this is a session zero thing, you should ask them, have you paid your your patron back? according to your deal or is it ongoing because i think that is a really interesting thing because either you're going to get a good story out of what they had to do to uphold their part of the bargain or you're going to have that tension with that uh patron tapping them on the shoulder every once in a while and saying um <laughs> you're on the clock <laughs> hey you owe me go do this yeah so in my streets of avalon game one of the players was a hexblade and the way i flavored that was that the spirit of the dwarf that had made these magical weapons was kind of hanging around through the weapon that the Hexblade could summon, and they were trapped on the edge of, like, the crumbling universe. So they were, like, hanging out just outside of reality, watching the universe fall off into entropy. And the dwarf was basically trying to nudge the party warlock into accelerating entropy because he thought that he had figured out a way to reforge reality at the exact point that it falls apart. So this whole time, and this was uh, Eric, by the way, that was playing this. And he was playing this character that was so oblivious to the dwarf because I would have conversations with him 
and the dwarf would say something really sinister. And when he repeated it to the rest of the party, he would omit the sinister part, but then also act like he didn't understand the sinister part. <laughs> so near the end of the campaign, this kind of came to a head where they could have done something that would have like rapidly started, you know, breaching reality by opening these portals. And he turned against his patron. And at the you know end of it, he ended up shifting his warlock patron to being this, um, for lack of a better term, this thing that looked like an angel with its uh, flesh, uh, you know, flayed off of its skin that was wanted revenge against anyone that did that, you know, sinned against the city. And that patron was a little less nihilistic than <laughs> than the dwarf. So he switched over to that patron. But yes, there was a lot of patron. There were a lot of tension there where that dwarf was trying to get him to basically accelerate entropy. Any other setting. But Streets of Avalon, it works. Yep. <laughs> so I've never played a warlock long term, uh, and I haven't seen this done with warlocks in other games that I have played. But I do know I have seen um, tieflings often have to wrestle with their heritage. Mm hmm. Uh, in the City of Cows campaign, our rogue arcane trickster, Anu, is a tiefling, and she is actually the descendant of a tiefling that ruled over the land when it was a hellscape, and mm -hmm. the the entities of hell would very much like her to take up that mantle again. And, you know, my character is constantly, you know, like, no, Anu, no, no, we stay good. <laughs> but I'm not good. No, we stay good. State of the light, state of the light. And actually, we've brushed up against it for Kazina in your Marhardi uh, campaign, because uh, you're a tiefling. Your soul belongs to somebody else. <laughs> you know, can you get it back before you die? Or are you just going to go back to where your soul is? Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that flavor with uh, tieflings kind of came out of fourth edition, because before that, it was just the idea that somewhere in your bloodline, Somebody had some kind of trust with something from the lower <laughs> planes and fourth edition kind of tied this to no, most of the tieflings came from this one, you know, this one nation where all the nobles made deals with, yeah, you know, with the infernal and that's where their infernal bloodline came from. So it did kind of intertwine the warlock story with the tiefling story mm -hmm. so that they were very similar to each other. <laughs> All right. Do you think that we have covered enough of the deities? I think we could go on for another hour if we really wanted to dig into it, but I don't think my voice will hold up for that long. Probably not. Although I did want to throw out one last comment about an Eberron deity that I absolutely love. It was the, the I forget what they actually call the religion, but it is basically Warforged trying to build a god for themselves. <laughs> and the Warforged clerics of this god get spells. And they believe that it comes from the future version of this god from when they finally complete it because they are fated to complete this perfect type, uh, warforge that they're building. Oh, that's brilliant. It is such a neat concept. I love it. <laughs> there's, there's a lot you can dig into with warforged and the, you know, the metaphysical uh, thoughts on, you know, their souls and their part in the world. And are they people? No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. All right, let's get into downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass on to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Roll for Initiative is a YouTube channel. Shocker there. Uh, and they recently <laughs> did this absolutely adorable video about 10 D&D spells I want as a parent. 
I found this to be <laughs> absolutely hysterical as they went over how spells like prestidigitation and dark vision oh. and mage hand would make their life easier raising kids. Oh, yeah. While this may seem very limited to only parents, I think it is a really good example of how to think about some of these spells and how they're useful in everyday life. Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're running in a high magic campaign like Eberron or Forgotten Realms, where you have a fair number of people with some of these, these low-level spells or mm -hmm. these cantrips that, I mean, seriously, you got a little kid or even a dog or a cat and you got prestidigitation, I will never be stepping in cat puke again. <laughs> Oh, I, I love that concept too. I love the concept of like the hedge wizard where like everything they know is utilitarian. Yep. It is neat and it is special and it's something you would love to be able to do, but it's not something big and flashy like shooting a lightning bolt. Yep. It is polishing a toilet when you don't want to do it. <laughs> not going to win a battle, but it's going to make your life so much easier. All right. In keeping with our theme for this episode, I would like to recommend Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman. You may know Neil Gaiman as the guy that wrote Sandman, which is also an awesome thing, which, you know, now that I bring that up, go listen to or read or watch Sandman, because I think a lot of the Endless are great warlock patrons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get a lot into the, the, the kind of the gods, metaphysics, all of this <laughs> with the Endless and everyone else they're dealing with in Sandman. But beyond Sandman, <laughs> I listened to the audiobook of uh, Norse mythology and Gaiman's writing is great. Like it always is. He's he's retelling traditional folk tales about the Norse gods, but he's telling them in his way. So there is a certain humor to it that is great. And I also think there is a humor that I think is actually comes from the actual Norse myths themselves that don't that doesn't always get translated when people just tell you a story about a god because they're very serious about it and telling you this is an important thing. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes Thor just had to dress up as, as uh, Freya to get his hammer back at a wedding. You know, it's a thing that happens. There is also a comic book adaptation that is currently in, I believe three volumes. I don't have that, but it looks amazing, but however you want to consume it, look up Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman. The audiobook was great. He reads it himself and I'm sure the comic is great. So Find a copy of it in some format and enjoy it. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us, also consider checking out... Misdirected Mark Plays. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry play and discuss a campaign they've created and are playing. Now, instead of just hearing them talk about the theory of gaming and game mastering of the games they're playing, you can actually hear what they do at the table. It's come full circle in their exploratory play series, MMP Plays. We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. <laughs>